Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them What you're doing down here, you shawny man. It will never be a normal game as long as I live, said Jurgen Klopp on Friday, doing his best to keep a lid on the hype for tonight's match. At Anfield, this is the Irish Times Second Camp Podcast. Ken Murph, hi guys. Hey, how are you? Sky Sports is certainly going all in on Red Monday. Did you say they're calling it again today? Red Monday. Red Monday, they're calling it. Ryan Ke- <laughs> Red Monday. How long did it take to think of that? Yeah. Oh, is, 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 there, is there something I'm missing to Red Monday? Or is it just as, is the name every bit as terrible as I think it is? I, I shouldn't I shouldn't really bring my personal life into this, but I I do remember my what? wife saying Super Sunday. What's that? That looks kind of big. And I said, No, that's the, and that's just what what it's called. She, <laughs> oh, every Sunday, yeah. it's called Super Sunday. She thought that was really lame. I yeah. was like, Is it? I didn't. I didn't even. I suppose it is. Well, it is. I mean, when it, you step back, if every Sunday is Super Sunday, then it, by definition, it can't be. Just cancel super. the Sunday. Yeah. Every, every cancel the Super every. If every Sunday is super, then no I mean, Sunday if it was every super. second Sunday, then you would say, right, well, last week's wasn't great, but this week is going to be super. Yeah, red anyway. Sky Sports are certainly going all in because they have that. They've got Ryan Giggs drafted in to join Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher. I read a report, <laughs> I read a Daily Mail report. Said, oh, also, the, uh, the, it's going to be live from Anfield for the first time in eight years, apparently. So uh, they're doing, presumably they're doing a pitch side and all the rest of it, like BT do. Monday... Sorry, Monday Night Football. Yeah, Sky's flagship football program returns live from a football stadium for the first time in eight years. According to the report I read. Mm. Well, we wait to see on that one. But anyway, this uh, Daily Mail article reckons that Giggs proved a controversial figure during ITV's coverage of Slovenia versus England when he criticised Daniel Sturridge and he'll be expected to add spice, add to the spice of Neville and sports mail columnist Carragher. On Tuesday, so I don't know, I was like, hang on, what did, I hadn't read this. What did, uh, Giggs eviscerated uh, Sturridge apparently? It's, uh, so they drew, they drew nil all against Slovenia. Giggs turned on red striker Sturridge, who failed to impress in Ljubljana. I played with Sturridge at the Olympics. The former Manchester Centre winger told ITV Sport. He has everything. He's got a good touch, good finisher. He's quick. He can run the channels. But to be a top, top player, decision making. Right. You have to make the right decisions. You have to make the right decisions more often than you make bad decisions. Today, wait for it. There were too many bad decisions. <laughs> wow. So that was him turning on. Lowering the boom. On, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Expect Daniel more Sturridge. of that tonight. I don't know if Daniel Sturridge will ever recover. At seven o'clock, though, I mean, that's pre-watershed. Yeah, just concerned for the children out there. Yeah, if you've got children under under ten, maybe best to look away while Ryan Giggs is talking. Well, at least Ryan Giggs, unlike um, the other interested parties, isn't um, engaging in obvious, uh, blatant voodoo uh, attempts to sort of reverse engineer the result by tenting fate. Uh, you know, in the way that they, they Paul Scholes, his his punditry colleague, uh, who remember was such an outspoken presence for uh, for so long when Louis Van Gaal was the manager, an outspoken and cantankerous presence, and seemed to have uh, 
become a lot more, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Mollified? He was just able to, he was just a, a guy who took the helicopter view. Oh, sorry. I thought, I thought you meant uh, in the last, because uh, well, you haven't mentioned Paul Scholes in a number of months now. I haven't, I haven't mentioned him because he's just been taking the helicopter view on stuff. Mm. He's been really sort of phlegmatic and he's been, he's been kind of zen. He's saying, look, it's a process. Jose Mourinho, Manchester United, given time. Uh, but, uh, you know, whereas, whereas uh, last season it was, it was a little bit more bayonet between the teeth, I'm going in for the kill, Scalzi, literally every single week on BT Sports. But he seems to have recovered a little bit of his old vim out of this one. Although I don't know if it's just voodoo. Because he says, if you were betting... You would be betting on Liverpool. Not that Scalzi would ever be betting, but if you were betting, you would be betting on Liverpool. Come on. I mean, we all recognize this. Reverse psychology. We all know what's going on here. Uh, but he does say, he does, he does make it sound a bit more plausible that he actually believes this by um, criticizing Jose Mourinho for, as far as I can see, the first time. Um, and he criticizes Jose Mourinho for not being Jose Mourinho enough. What's the quality that you would associate with Jose Mourinho? Above all. Ruthless. Ruthless. Correct. Right first time. Don't poke me in the shoulder again. Ow. <laughs> he was not really hurt. He was not ruthless enough <laughs> in the off season, Skull said. There's so much confusion about who should play. What I saw of Mourinho at Chelsea, he had thirteen or fourteen players who played every week. He never rested players, even in the League Cup or whatever competition. He was in. With United, it's still a settling in period. It's going to take a bit of time for them to knit together and see what they're about. Is there an identity to the team yet? I don't think there is. You can see Jurgen Klopp has stamped his way of playing on the team. There's a definite way about them. You know how they're going to play. They're going to be quick. They're going to try and take the ball off you and try to score goals by flooding the box. I was worried about them defensively, but they've already played some of the big teams and they're a real threat. So here's Paul Scholes' <laughs> take. Um... Yeah, not ruthless enough. Hasn't stamped identity in the team. A shapeless, formless rabble. Expect Liverpool to take the three points. We're going to add to the hype today by talking to the author of a new book about Liverpool, Simon Hughes, Ken, who it's kind of a player's, the player's stories into the 21st century. Yeah, it's the third one of these that Simon has done. It's actually very good. Um, Ring of Fire, it's called. Liverpool uh, Football Club into the 21st century. The player's stories. Uh, not just players, actually, in this instance. He's also got Jared Houllier and... Uh, um, Rick Parry Rick Parry the former chief executive uh, in, in addition to some some of the big players uh, Owen Cagher Danny Murphy Chubby Alonso Fernando Torres Albert Riera uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know the Steven Gerrard and Rafael Benitez for well reasons he explains in the introduction aren't uh, aren't in the book Gerrard does a forward um, Benitez well, he thought about talking to Benitez, but at the end of the day, what would, what would really have been the point? So uh, it is it is a very good book. So we'll talk to uh, Simon a little bit about uh, that. Liverpool kind of the state, the situation they're in now. Um, obviously, this new stadium is kind of the most significant progress they've made at a club level, you know, a kind of institution level in many years after a lot of chaos, the chaotic period that he describes. It's amazing just to remember how <laughs> insane it was. Tom Hicks. Uh, sitting in his uh, his mansion in Dallas, in front of a roaring fire, in uh, it was in mid-April because it was the anniversary of Hillsborough, and Tom Hicks decided to go on Sky Sports News to do an interview to slam his own chief executive Rick Perry, uh, and say that uh, he was doing a disgraceful job and should resign, but he couldn't actually sack his own chief executive because he didn't have the authority to do that, uh, given that he was only fifty percent owner of the club. You know, just incredibly stupid things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a good book. Okay, a few hard shaws out there claim that they watched the video that we put together late last week to promote our second captain sports annual volume two. And man, it, you won't believe this, Murph. These these hard shaws. I'm crying. These guys, I think they're a little too tough. These guys and girls are there. Some of them say they managed to hold back the tears. Yeah, you're Andy Lee's. That's who mm. I'm really talking about. We almost had him. Apparently, almost. You're impressing nobody, Andy. Sure, Golovkin watched it too. He was in bits. We are here now working on a record called The Gang's All Here. Would you like to give us uh, a preview of this disc? Well, we'll let's give him a sound. Come on, let's give him a preview. Right. We'll do a lot better if we had the music here with us. Right, we're going to do it. We'll, we'll try now. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Join in the fun. 
Hey, hey, the gang's all here. We're gonna swing as one. How you like that? <laughs> I'll see you guys later. All right, Sam. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Kaz. You're welcome. All right. Lost my words, really. I'm over the moon. Emotional. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. That's the color of my room where I will live. Killian shoots. He's hooked it away to the left and wide. It's just not meant to be for male. Nothing to read, nothing to say. I understand how difficult it is, Keith. They're known for being cheats. They'll always be cheats. Amateur boxing stinks from the core right there on top. I will sit right down. I'm waiting for the gift of sound. 20 years we've been waiting for this, and, and at last we've got that Olympic medal. I will see. Waiting for the gift of sound and vision. Patrick Hickey, the president of Ireland's Olympic Drifting Committee, has been arrested. They're all pumped. They're all just head my head. Don't you wonder sometimes about sound and vision? There is the whistle. It's one of those nights. It's Stuttgart. It's New Jersey. They're all rolled into one. Another big, big scalp when it was needed most. Leon, here we go. Beautiful work there, I'm sure you'll agree, by our producer, Mark Horgan. It's okay, Murph, I brought the tissues. I can see you're struggling a little bit here. The Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 2 is ready to pre-order now at secondcaptains.com, where you can also watch that video. The book features Ken's Euro 2016 diary, Murph's searing analysis of what it means to play a bit of minor for the county. Ushi McConville's Kabaddi Club. I don't know quite. Kabaddi College, on. get it right. I thought it was club. It's college. College on college. Where you Ushin McConville's Kabaddi College, or Triple K, as we like to call it. <laughs> Where you can learn all the tools to bring out the inner Kabaddi star in you, and loads more great stuff. Do you live in Ireland or the UK? Well, your luck is in, because we will post this bad boy out to you, free of those pesky postage and packaging charges. You just pay for the book. You have a little, do you live a little bit further afield? Ah, don't worry, you won't get killed on postal charges. Mostly around the five euro mark or so worldwide. So you will be getting it much cheaper than last year, if you're ordering it. Online, what are you waiting for? There's a limited edition being printed. Get on at secondcaptains.com. Feel free to pause this podcast and order right now, actually. We'll still be we, here when you we get won't back. Hold it against Yeah, no, we'll still be here. See, we're still here. And thank you very much <laughs> for your for your order. It's time now for Kennedy's report on sport. So uh, as I mentioned, skulls getting in on the voodoo. What about this from Jurgen Klopp? Oh, this is a man who understands um nativist uh, belief systems <laughs> with the best of them he go on um, uh, people have been saying Jose Mourinho might be past his prime is he looking a little baggy eyed a little paunchy faced is he a little behind the times what was once so terrifyingly new now seems um, you know so almost passive. sort of yeah like um, a lot of sympathy for Jose going around amongst the, the media. It's bullshit, says Klopp. No, but rubbish. Who says this? He has started badly at United. They won their first games. So now you were giving B grades for winning? I tried to play similar football to now with my former team. When we faced Real Madrid, it was unbelievably difficult to play them. Smash Real Madrid 4-1 in the uh, Champions League semi-final. Um, he says... He knows how successful football works. To like or not like the way he plays, why should he care? Why should he care? That is, maybe that's a little bit, you know. Maybe that's a little bit. Oh, Jose Mourinho, your style is not so attractive. Uh, He said, they were, he says, uh, how can I say who is on the way here and who's on the way there? If I lose against Manchester United, you will stand here and ask me, so what about your ways? I am, of course, not interested and absolutely not part of the group that says Jose Mourinho was or has been a good manager. Uh, he's a competitor. Without knowing him well, I know he will want to win this game. 
So good insight there from from Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, what else is he going to say? Jose Mourinho, I don't think, is the biggest fan of Jurgen Klopp. Um, Why do you say that? Well, you know, I don't think he, I don't think he's a huge fan. I think Jose Mourinho isn't really that big a fan of of anyone to a degree, but I, to win the Champions League commands respect. And who hasn't won the Champions League? As Klopp himself said, he's won the Champions League more times than I've played in it. And that's very true. Well, it's not true, so to speak. I found it interesting that Klopp used that, that I've played in it. Uh, I don't know whether he meant seasons of participation, um, which I guess is uh, three for Dortmund anyway. Isn't it? Is it three or, or two? I'm not 100% sure. Mourinho, of course, with two titles. Um, but Mourinho said, I'm there to coach, not to... What am I doing? You're flapping, flapping your, your hands. hands up and down. Yeah. So who who does that? Well, uh, on the sideline. Yeah. Well, Jurgen Klopp, doesn't he? That's that. Jose Mourinho is not there to engage in all that kind of touchline theatrics. You wouldn't catch no. him at that kind of stuff. Well, not not in this decade. <laughs> no. He's too tired. <laughs> he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't do that anymore. Put um, his back out. Um. But look, he, you know, he's not, uh, I wouldn't say he... Well, maybe tonight he'll break with the convention and uh, carry Juan Mata around Anfield, well, like la- Jurgen Klopp was carrying who Sadio Mane around. The last time I remember a big um, a big uh, moment like that for me was actually at Anfield, was the, was the day when he, um, when he prevented... When, it was one of his unshaven sportswear days. Hmm. When he turned up looking deliberately, you know, just, just l- l- deliberately looking as though he wasn't taking any of this seriously. Mm. And uh, and then ran down towards the away fans, you know, beating his chest at the uh, at the last minute clincher. Well, not clincher, it was already 1-0, but 2-0, killer. Um, uh, so he does he does like this game. Um, there's a bit of history there. We'll talk to Simon uh, Hughes, no doubt about, about some of that. But... Uh, some injury concerns, possibly Liverpool. Vinaldum and Lallana have been playing for them in midfield all season, but they have both been injured, but have not been ruled out of the game and may yet play. Injuries are kind of going out of fashion now. I mean, injuries still happen, but it's like they just don't seem to take, keep you out that long. I remember when Kevin De Bruyne was there playing for for Manchester City. He was supposed to have a bad hamstring injury, but he was okay. Little Messi again, fast recovery, back back in scoring form for Barcelona. Um. So I wouldn't be surprised if Wijnaldum and Lallana uh, were able to make it. Mourinho, incidentally, uh, is being investigated by the FA for comments about the referee. Uh, I actually feel a bit sorry for Mourinho this time, uh, because while he does appear to have essentially, it basically broken the rule that you're not supposed to talk about the referee before the game, this is definitely not one of his worst ones. Um, he, and he says, I have my view. This is the, the fact is that the referee... Um, uh, Anthony Taylor has been appointed. He comes from Altrincham, which is, let's say, closer to Old Trafford than it is to Anfield. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, like a suburb suburb of Manchester, or like you know, a, isn't it where Paddy Crown's pub town. was and this kind of stuff? Yes. For a lot of the ex-players. Certainly back in the eighties, I think a few of the boys might have had a couple of pints in Crown's pub there in Altrincham. Yeah. Oh, oh no, it's a word I can't say. I've just realised. I leave it to you, Ken. Well, no, it's, 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 <laughs> Altrincham. Well, that's how it's meant to. It's it's yeah. spelt Altrincham. But, but it's pronounced Altrincham. Altrincham for Can't say reason. it either way, so let's uh, move on. That and ex- exclusive. I can say exclu- exclusive when I it's, say it. It's like Jose Mourinho. Yeah, it's always been a tricky one. Jose Mourinho is Mourinho and not Marine Ho. You know, like uh, you just have to respect the pronunciation as it is spoken by the people who actually use the word and not as it appears to you in your you know, phon- phonetic... Uh, you see? Yeah, <laughs> I do get <laughs> Uh, but anyway, for me, said, I've, I have my view, but I learned a lesson by being so many times punished by some words. I don't want to say anything about it. I think Mr. Taylor's a very good referee, but I think somebody with intention is putting such a pressure on him. I feel it will be difficult for him to have a very good performance. Um, I mean, it's innocuous enough. In this, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's probably I mean, not, if you're going to get innocuous. a suspension for it, shouldn't you just say the thing that's on your mind? <laughs> I mean, I mean he's, he's probably going to get suspended for saying nothing there. Yeah. Well, he may, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. He, he may get a fine. Um, I'd say that's more likely, isn't it? It's hard to know. 
Um, but obviously the build-up to this. Gary Neville, it's, it's such as the build-up, such as the global interest that the Players' Tribune, oh. that renowned website that we every so often refer to. Is your nose ever out of the Players' Tribune again? Uh, yeah, most Journalist of the time. free zone, of course, the Players' Tribune. Well, yeah, it is. It is. It'll so. never take off. You know the, our theory. You know uh, the Centre Georges Pompidou in yes. Paris? Yes. What's distinctive about that building? That the... The, outs- the outside of the building, the facade of the building, is in fact the inside of the building. The, yeah. the pipes. It's like its guts have all extruded, ugh, extruding guts all over this building. Mm. Why? Uh, you know, so you can get a look at the pipes. Why would anyone want to see, see all that ugly stuff? Um, the Players' Tribune is like an inverted Centre Georges Pompidou. All of the ugly uh, pipes and, and kind of bits of this and that that stick the thing together are so it's an concealed building. beneath the smooth yeah but you know you have to you have to see the other kind of building in order to appreciate what's going on in a normal building and I think the Players Tribune is quite ostentatious about about mm. that like it's like literally we don't have it's I mean, the centre that's closest in distance to the Saint Georges Pompidou obviously as yeah. journalists we feel bitter about this um, website which is trying to crush our profession um, but you know Gary Neville fascinating stuff uh, doesn't like Liverpool uh, grew up a Manchester United supporter Liverpool very successful in the 80s um, that must have been really tough for him oh it was tough it was tough you know he used to love going to matches at Old Trafford eating pie and chips uh, you know his dad would have a pint and a chat and he would go and look at the, the beautiful stadium soak up the atmosphere and then, but of course, Liverpool were, were winning, and he would he would uh, he would argue with his his uh, schoolmates, many of whom were Liverpool supporters. They would say, "We've won the league the last however many years." He'd say, "Well, we've got a big stadium." They would say, "Well, you're rubbish," and he'd say, "Well, we've got Robson," and they'd say, "Nah, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't win the league." And this kind of stuff would go on. So then, when he played for them, how sweet it was, Owen! How sweet it was that he was able to beat them. On some occasions, when he won the treble, Manchester United won the treble of League FA Cup and Champions League in 1999, Gary Neville stood on the open top bus and looked down and saw a man in the crowd celebrating. And he thought, that man probably, like me, grew up with Liverpool supporters, you know, mocking him. Anyways, that, that's the piece. <laughs> uh, okay. You, should, you can all check it out on the Players' Tribune. You were similarly... Unimpressed by the Claudio Ranieri piece on the Players' Tribune, if I remember correctly. Well, that was the one in which he claimed there, all his uh, success, Leicester City's success, was based on pizza. Not just eating pizza, but making pizza together as a team. Um, Leicester obviously took another absolute pasting. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this weekend, uh, Chelsea absolutely destroyed them. Um I mean, I, I guess Ranieri probably isn't going to make it to the end of the season. You know what I mean? That's, it's like how, how much credit do you get for winning the title? Um, in a way, do you become a victim of your own success? I mean, Ranieri, to be honest, would probably not mind leaving. Do you think? What's the point? I'm not going to sack him. There is the Champions League. Well, then they might. They will if they get it into relegation trouble. It's not as though the owner has necessarily been there for very long. You've got to remember that for the owner, winning the Premier League is normal. You know, it's 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 kind of like well, of course we win we win all the, our, our divisions. We win the championship. We get we do well in the Premier League. We win the Premier League, and now we are failing. Well, there is a Champions League which is going along. Yeah, no, the the Champions the Champions League is is going okay. Uh, so yeah, it would be strange for Leicester well, City to get into you know the quarterfinals of the Champions League and their manager to be sacked. <laughs> all I'm saying is that the uh, uh, you know all the secrets of Leicester's success. Uh, that you know, people were talking about do look rather like a combination of having a really, you know, really good central midfielder. Not to mention some of your other players, Mars and Vardy, in amazing form. Kante, who's a player they didn't no longer have, um, and being quite lucky rather than you know pizza making pizza together or any of the other things. Really, any you know uh, any of any of these things. Anyway, the kind of the most interesting game in a way that was happening over the weekend was probably the Man City Everton game, which was really freakish. You had um, you had Stecklenburg making producing this incredible performance, saving two penalties, um, saving numerous other 
superb attempts. I mean, the goal by, or the, the shot, rather, by Kevin De Bruyne, which he tips onto posts, absolutely incredible. And Stecklenburg is a goalkeeper who often struggles with long shots more than a lot of goalkeepers out there. He does seem to, whoa, find himself watching a ball flash past him from 30 yards, most recently just against France um, during the week. Pogba scored on him from, from like nearly 40 yards. Um, but he was really, it was a brilliant performance. Everton almost unlucky to win. Not unlucky not to win, really. I mean, City should have, could have won 6-1. Koeman said afterwards, they're the best team I've ever played against. Like, as a coach, mm. never. It's the best team that I've faced as a manager, which is pretty high praise. Um, and it is, I mean, okay, City are on, a, you know, the, the run at the moment isn't great. The next game is against Barcelona. Um, but they did actually play really well. It's just strange to see, you know, Sergio Aguero, this this kind of difficult period he was having with Argentina, it's sort of beginning to um, seep into Manchester City where he missed the penalty. The second penalty of the game, because he was already, uh, he led De Bruyne to take the first and he missed the second. De Bruyne missed and then Aguero missed. It's incredible. Um, uh, maybe a bit of a mental question, suggests Kim. There was also a very good goal by Lukaku, who I wonder if, although, I mean, it was, it was obviously City were kind of caught with not enough numbers at the back. I also thought that Bravo should have saved it. The goal, I mean, it was a, it was a good run by Lukaku. It kind of shows what he is capable of doing when he's playing well. You know, he destroyed, I think it was Gael Clichy, um, who couldn't get close to him at all. But I thought that Bravo could have maybe done a bit better with a shot from a quite a narrow angle like that. But anyway, um, what was Guardiola saying? Guardiola, very gracious, as usual. Well done, well done. At what point almost does graciousness shade into being a bit patronizing? You know, well done. I really never thought you'd merge the point from here, but a hearty well done to you. Um, now, that's, un- that's unfair, I suppose. But he did, he, he uh, there was a little bit of thought crime maybe from Pep Guardiola. I mean, any people who, are, who follow the Premier League, uh, people who believe in the Premier League, who support the Premier League, I mean, who are these imaginary people? I don't know. I don't know who I'm talking about here. But the idea that the Premier League is the best league in Europe not many people still believe that. Maybe people say, well, you know, in terms of entertainment, you wouldn't see Leicester City winning La Liga. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, people can usually accept that Bayern, Munich, Barcelona are, are at a level above any team in the Premier League uh, and have been for a few years. Um, but one thing that the Premier League has that those leagues can't have is the intensity, the pace, the tempo the intensity of the Premier League. Um, Guardiola says, I hear a lot of times about the intensity of the Premier League, but none of you have been in La Liga or the Bundesliga to know how it is. Uh, the problem here is maybe there are more games, but the way they play in Germany is, <laughs> it's amazing. I think you have to have respect for the other leagues, how they play and the way they play. Um, Barcelona- wait, wait a minute, Pep, you're not supposed to say that. No. You're, a, you're a Premier League guy now. Yeah, you're a Premier League guy now, Pep. You obviously didn't get the memo. You know, he's coming and he's like, well, you know, I've been hearing this stuff for the last, like, seven seasons about how, you know, anyone could win the league with those guys. Anyone could have managed those guys. People asking ignorant, saying ignorant things <laughs> like that. And, of course, that's not true. And, he's, you know, when Barcelona win 4-0, uh, three amazing players in front, good counterattack, the way they build up, especially how they play a machine. So when they win 4-0, it's because they deserve to win 4-0. You know, it's not because they're playing against a team of college students who, you know, work at Subway. Uh, to make ends meet uh, when they're not playing football, you know, which is which is an alternative explanation for why Barcelona are so dominant in some of those games. But uh, Pep doesn't agree, and unlike some of the people disagreeing or criticizing, he has actually been in all those places and has uh, seen it all up close. All right, the other big news, I guess, over the last few days, Ken, has been Chet Evans and his acquittal. He gave an interview yesterday to. David Walsh about all that. Mm. Well, not as acquittal. He, his his um, quashing of his sentence. He shouldn't have quashing of his sentence. He, should say. If, if he'd been acquitted in the first place, then uh, um, he wouldn't have had to go to jail. Um, but yeah, he he has been. He has done a few interviews. Uh, obviously, it's provoked a big reaction as ever as as this story has been ever since it sort of began um, five years ago. Um, he told David Walsh he doesn't 
he doesn't hate the uh, the woman who was involved, uh, who he was alleged to have raped, which is big of him. Mm. Um, we we spoke about this at the time, or, or when Chet Evans actually was released from prison. This was in 2014. Um, and we talked to Anna Crean, uh, who had a book out around that time called Night Games, which was all about uh, Australian rules football, or or it was it was about some. There was a particular case of sexual assault against a player, against actually not a bit against a sort of a hanger on actually, uh, who, but it, a hanger on who was in some sort of tenuous way friends with these professional Aussie rules players but yeah that delved into that was a brilliant book I think it, I think it won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year yeah, award did, yeah. a couple of years ago and it kind of delved into this whole area of consent and entitlement among, among professional some professional sports people uh, and you know that kind of area the kind yeah the whole kind of culture surrounding it so we talked to, uh, about the book um, this a couple of years ago but towards the end uh, it was around the same it just coincidentally was around the same time as this uh, Chad Evans stuff, as, as when he was actually being released from prison after uh, after being in there. And you asked Anna towards the end of that piece um, what she thought of the, you know, she had been following it. She said, what, what kind of, what did you think of the argument that Chad Evans has done his time, that he deserves another chance, a chance that it looked at that stage as though he might not be about to get? In the case of Chad Evans, um, and in many people's case, who, when it becomes a sexual crime, I don't really think he has done his time, not mentally. I, he, there has been no, I don't, I, for me, I haven't detected any humility. And I also think that there was a sense of, this, this only came to people's attention when once a rape charge, you know, was, was, was aired which means that the degrading and humiliating way in which the female was, treat, was treated would never, otherwise have never seen the light of day. And whilst Chet Evans doesn't need to admit that there was you know, necessarily a rape, I think he needs to admit that there was one woman was treated really badly and horribly and inhumanely. And, you know, she, she was in his hands and he treated her incredibly badly. And he hasn't done that. And it's sad because it seems to me that he's continuing to deflect responsibility for the situation. Um, you know, it's, it's everyone else's fault that he's not going to keep playing. It's um, the sponsor's fault that he's not going to keep playing. It's the public's fault. It's actually his fault that he's not going to keep playing uh, football because if he had taken responsibility, if he did look head-on, at the, the events that occurred that night, if he looked deep inside himself, he would, you know, be able to come to terms with what happened and see that he, um, you know, was was badly behaved and really treated a person really badly and left her scarred, whether he raped her or not. And he could be a great role model. He could, if he embraced that and started talking about it and started talking to other players and young players and, and young fans about rape and the nuances of rape and how how easy it is to find yourself um, in you know the bad guy's shoes, as he did, he would be a great person to have on the field. Yeah, his argument would be, that was Anna Crean speaking to us uh, a while back and it's well worth reading that book if you want to get into this sort of area in, in a lot of detail. The argument he would make is that he didn't show contrition because he didn't do anything wrong, I guess, Ken. I mean, this is, mm. and, and he would feel vindicated in that now, uh, just going by the by the verdict of the you know of the court. Through soon, according to Walsh, through two and a half years at HM Prison, Wymott in Lancashire, he maintained his innocence when he refused to undergo a sex offender's rehabilitation course, insisting he didn't believe he was a sex offender. They denied him enhanced status. So I suppose that's what he would say to that, that, that that's the reason that he, that he hasn't shown contrition. Yeah, um, but as Anna pointed out, there is a difference. Um, you, don't, you don't necessarily have to admit rape to admit wrongdoing, to having acted wrongly, um, which is a distinction Chad Evans um, never quite seemed to grasp. He has, however taken on the mantle of role model in at least one aspect. He says that um, 
footballers, you know, you get your gambling training, you get your drinking training, um, but people need to be educated on this issue of alcohol and consent. You know, if they're drunk, you've got to think twice. Uh, so it's good that I suppose he's, 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 he's I mean, if they're drunk, you've got to think twice. Um, well, I don't know. I don't think that girl being drunk was the only thing that landed Chet Evans in so much trouble over this situation. One of the couple of the details that emerged that are kind of hard to get wrap your head around involve the so right the court, court of appeal originally heard uh, originally quashed the verdict and allowed this new case to to um, to be brought up right so they did that and in in that appeals process they decided that they would allow the allow two men who had previously had sexual relations with the woman to speak in court about that which normally doesn't happen there's a you know very specific act that puts strict limits on details of alleged victim sexual past which can be aired in court other than in exceptional circumstances so what happens is lady justice ha- hallett is the name of the, the judge here uh sitting with a couple of others ruled that it was a rare case in which it would be appropriate to allow forensic examination of the woman's sexual behavior their accounts have sufficiently close resemblance to the appellant's account as to make the evidence so similar that it cannot be reasonably explained as a coincidence so something like this may have happened before with this woman. So therefore, we're going to allow these two men to talk about this. Now, as women, as women's groups are saying, like this goes back to the days. They say it sets a really dangerous precedent. Throw back to the last century. A spokeswoman for women against, women against rape said the verdict opened the floodgates to trashing the woman's character in any rape trial once again. There's you know, a reason why people find it. It can be distasteful for uh, previous, uh, you know, previous sexual partners of a woman in this situation to come along and start talking about her and for inferences about her character or whatever it might be to be made from that. Uh, also, the court heard that Mr. Evans' family and friends offered a fifty thousand pound reward for information to clear his name. Mm. Uh, yeah, but there, there was no there was no precedent set by the ruling. Mm. The, the there. Are f- Whatever it is, there are four exceptions in law that can be used, and the judge decreed that one of those. Yeah, one of those uh, was met. The criteria was met in one of those cases. So there's no new precedent. the 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 law, no, there has been no change of law, no change of precedent in law as a result of this case. The four exceptions that were suggested when the law first came in, one of those was met. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really understand the the legal technicalities of when that type of evidence is, you know, I'm, I'm not a barrister, I haven't a clue about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and in terms of the legal niceties of the the proceedings and the judgment, you know, I'm not an expert, I, I don't know. Yeah, I should say, that's that spokeswoman I mentioned for Women Against Rape, she was talking about the verdict in general, opening the floodgates to trashing the woman's character in any rape trial once again. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not convinced that it necessarily does, you know, that it's going to have a changing effect on the law. I mean, which is, I think which is correct about is the, um, is, is what happens. I mean, Amy O'Connor, for instance, who is one of the writers in our um, annual, uh, tweeted something over the weekend where basically she had just seen, it was, what, what did she say? She says, like, why don't women report sexual assault? And then what she just had was a couple of screen grabs and she had obviously just searched on Twitter for the words Chet Evans and slag. Mm. And, you know, you could see that there was just a lot, you know, there's a lot of people going, uh, you know, Chet Evans, uh, essentially the, all the tweets boiled down to Chet Evans, uh, innocent, which again is, you know, <laughs> it, Chet Evans not guilty is what the court found. You know, Chet Evans could not be convicted beyond reasonable doubt. Cause the, 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 the prosecution did not make the case beyond reasonable doubt that Chet Evans had definitely committed a rape. That's what the verdict means. Um, and, you know, when is this slag going to get a comeuppance? That was basically the, you know, what all the messages were saying. And I kind of wonder why people get so angry, like, you know, in this way, it's kind of, it's, it's weird to see it, you know, it's weird. I think, you know, if you, if you see people doing that, it's like signs something isn't right, you know what I mean? Like, With the per, people doing it? Person has some, is- 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 some issues 
which they need to address. Mm. All right, that's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. Ahead of the big game tonight, we have got Simon Hughes ready to go, uh, ready to chat about his book, Ring of Fire, LFC into the 21st Century, The Player's Story. Simon, good to talk to you on the show again. Yeah, thanks for, the, for inviting me on. I'm sure, you, yeah, I'm sure you're pretty excited about tonight. It feels, it feels quite big, doesn't it, with Klopp and Mourinho and everything else? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I think the, the, the main thing as well for me is, is the... Uh, you know the first game in front of the the main stand at night as well. Mm. You know it's uh, we've kind of seen seen uh, the, what it's what it's like against Leicester and Hull, and um, I'm just intrigued to see what that's going to be like. Uh, you know, an extra ten thousand people inside Anfield for a game like this. Um, obviously, there's no European matches this year, so I think uh, you know that these type of night games aren't they're not going to be that many of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously the Mourinho cloth factor. Is, is huge. I think uh, at this moment, I mean, uh, it's it, it tends to work against the team that, that's favourites. I think in, in in these situations that they have done in the past, when Liverpool have looked like the stronger team, United have, have kind of you know caused a bit of a shock. And you know, well, not a shock necessarily, but you know, it feels like evidence against Mourinho at the moment. It feels like evidence against Rooney. I just wonder whether. You know, Rooney's got had, had a good record at Anfield over the years, and he scored last season when United didn't play particularly well. Um, so I think it's going to be a really close game. I can't, I can't really see. Um, I can't really, I can't really call, pick a winner at, the, at this moment. I think uh, Liverpool. It's always difficult to judge. You know how how, uh, how they're going to react to the international break. Um, I think Coutinho's a big a big one. You know, he's been away in South America for the last couple of weeks. I know Klopp said that. He's probably going to play, but um, I think I think if he's fifth, I think he he gives Liverpool a little bit more of a creative edge, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, 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 it's a really exciting game, and we'll see. Uh, we, we, we I think it could at the end of the season could be one of those kinds of games where you look back and see, you know, kind of guides the team in the direction that they're, they're probably going to be in for the, for the rest of the season. I don't want to say to a you know six pointer or anything like that, but. <laughs> It feels uh, it feels a bit different this one. Yeah, and I'd be very interested. Uh, it's funny you bring up those mm. extra fans to see how the Liverpool crowd reacts mm. to Jose Mourinho. I mean, they've had plenty of time to give him stick over the years, but this time as yeah. Manchester United manager, reading through your book, I I hadn't realised quite how close until now, quite how close Jose Mourinho had come to being the darling of of the cup. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean it. It, it, you could look at it two ways, I suppose. I mean, it, it never went beyond the initial discussion with with, uh, with Liverpool, um, and that that discussion was quite an, an impromptu meeting. Really, it, it certainly wasn't something that Rick Parry had had um, a plan for. But you know, in a different world, you know, if maybe somebody else was in charge of Liverpool, perhaps you know, Mourinho could have ended up. Managing Liverpool um, in 2000, would be 2004, 2005, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's. I think it just reflects the way football is. <laughs> uh, you know, a, an agent turning up um, at Anfield on one hand, discussing transfer targets with, with Gerard Hulia, and then on on the other hand, going into the next room next door and and essentially trying to get him fired. Uh, you know, Liverpool hadn't decided to get rid of Julio at that point. It was only around March. In fact, it was it was the night Man, Man United uh, played Porto at Old Trafford and Mourinho went running down the touchline. And I think uh, his actions that night probably prompted, you know, the people in Liverpool to just think, is, is he really... Can you imagine a Liverpool manager doing that at Old Trafford? Does yeah. Come out of the ground? Or Simon, I was, re- um, I was reading that, Simon, and um, mm. Rick, you know, Rick Parry co- comes across a bit... A bit Bobby Charlton at that point. He said, "Not for me, not for me." You know, uh, this this kind of behaviour is unsuitable for a Liverpool manager. So, what does he think of the current Liverpool manager? 
The giving, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, giving a, a jockey oh. back to Sadio Mane around the technical area in front of Arsene Wenger was Rick Parry there, you know, walking well, away in disgust. That's it. I mean, you'd have to ask Rick what he thinks of uh, if you heard Klopp. I can't speak to him, you know, on behalf of him for that. But yeah, I know what you mean. I think. Uh, I suppose now, you know, Liverpool on what they need from their manager might be slightly different to what they needed um, maybe 10 years ago. Um, I mean, I think, that, you know, the, the, the big thing that the club's done is, is maybe challenge, you know, supporters' way of thinking towards, you know, the club. I think the support at Liverpool has changed a lot, even in the last 10 years. You know, since then, we've, you know, Liverpool have had you know, uh, the Hicks and Gillette reign, which is, you know, I think I, I still think the club suffers from that. You know, I think the supporters are very dis- distrusting of, of the owners, um, you know, when they get things wrong. Um, you know, the, it, the, the Hicks and Gillette thing is never far away, you know, from, from people's minds. And I suppose that's just a natural consequence of, of the situation that Paul found itself in at the end of that decade. And I think what Jürgen Klopp's tried to do is, is certainly, you know, Make it more of a, you know, unify. He's tried to unify the club um, by making, you know, I think fans now can relate to it a little bit more. They want to, you know, ten years on after, uh, you know, the way football is now, there's there's not a great deal of passion that we see, and I think I think people are kind of more willing to entertain that now. And I think the owners, you know, it's a different ownership group as well, isn't it? I think they've kind of arrived at the. Uh, Finally arrived at the conclusion that it might actually be worth appointing a world, you know a continental or world class manager because I think that's what Liverpool needs to, to drive the club forward. Really, yeah. um, you know the, the expectations of the club are unique. I don't think there's any other club that, that's uh, that's gone this length of time without winning and winning, you know, the league, the league title, which is obviously what everybody wants. And I think you know to, to get Liverpool on on the path that it needs to be, you've got to do things a little bit differently. I think now and have a strong leader and you know um if you know the, the initial signs on the clock are quite positive I think but I still think there's there's quite a long way to go. Yeah. The, I mean when you read the book you do you are reminded again and again and it's not just from you know Rick Parry who who was running the club for a while but also the stories of players like um well particularly Fernando Torres I guess mm. just how shambolic Liverpool has been at an institutional level for so many years and even or you could say especially when they were quite good under Rafael Benitez. I mean, the, the whole story about um, Rick Parry and David Moore's global tour hawking the club around the place is, a, is absolutely just incredible, down to the details of, of David Moore's not wanting to go to certain places because of restrictions on, on flying these days. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think, I suppose David Moore's is... Possibly the last of the uh, you know the the old well he is that Liverpool's never going to have another owner who who's I would be majorly surprised who is a, a Liverpool supporter who is from the city you know he's, he's the last of the, the the old fashioned owners if you like and I think that you know that just reflects really you know where Liverpool were at you know I think I think people talk about like the nineties don't they as, as the decade where football changed forever but I, I actually think you know the it was still being felt in, in, in the last decade. There was still, you know, big differences between the types of owners that were coming in then. Uh, if you look at the start of the decade, it wasn't just at Liverpool. You know, pretty much every club was was owned by a local businessman or, or a, you know, run by committee or a board. And by the end of the decade, there weren't many of those clubs left. So I know, obviously, you know, the 90s, you look at Sky's impact on football and, and everything else, but... You know, I still think that, you know, in, in maybe years and decades to come, we'll look back at this decade, you know, the, the 2000s. I don't want to use that term, noughties, because it's, uh, yeah. it's just wrong, isn't it? But I think, you know, you look at, I suppose, you compare everything to Man United, don't you? It's going back to the conversation that, you know, we were having earlier on about Liverpool and United, that you, you compare Liverpool and United at that time, and I think everything seemed very basic at Liverpool. I mean, it, the, the one thing that, that Rick Parry, I, I kind of gleaned from his interviews that he probably tried to do too much, you know, as 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 a chief executive. I mean, I, I couldn't understand how he could, you know, work on the day to day issues when you're actually trying to sell a club, you're trying to build a stadium, you're trying to, you know, forward the club, you're trying to get the transfers done, you're trying to you know, there's it was too the job was too big for one person. I think it just kind of you compare that to maybe Man United, they would have had, you know, different people working on different projects, whereas it all fell on Rick's shoulders, I think, at that time. Maybe he 
maybe he would have delegated more. I think if he probably had his chance again, he, he probably would do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, David Moore's you know, David Moore's yeah. was was unsure or or didn't really want to negotiate with certain um, potential buyers because it would have meant getting on a long flight in which he couldn't smoke. Yeah, well, Why did Rick I mean, Parry not just buy David Moore's nicotine gum? <laughs> well, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. I think. I think that David Moore's. I think there was a feeling at the time. I know. I know that Rick was really keen to, you know, for the Dubai, um, for Dubai to come in because he'd seen what had happened in Dubai um, as a city, and you know how rapidly things had changed. You know, in that city, and I think he felt that wow, you know, if somebody or some people could come in from Dubai and, and transform Liverpool at the same kind of you know rate, which is what it needed. You know, that'd be a good thing. Now, obviously, when as as time progressed and that that became more problematic and more difficult, I think they wanted to see. I know it sounds it sounds like I suppose David Moore is being greedy or, or being you know not really thinking of the club's interest at heart, but I think. They by, by by somebody who's trying to buy the club, showing David Moore's and pulling out all the stops for him. It would reflect, you know, that he this person or these people like Robert Kraft, for example, um, was serious about Liverpool. Is I think when they went to to Dubai, they felt that you know that it wasn't really a priority. You know that, that Liverpool they weren't meant to feel like Liverpool was a priority. You know they they went out there and made to wait in a hotel for a couple of days and didn't really meet the people that. They should have been. They should have been meeting. Um, and again, I mean, I think I think it just reflects on David Moore's character, really. That you know, he, he is a, like kind of he, in, he inherited Liverpool basically, and it was his. He he. I wouldn't say he was the most you know kind of uh, proactive or visionary chairman there's ever been. You know, the type of owners that other clubs have now. I think he wanted. He did probably genuinely want the best for Liverpool, but. At the end of the day, he probably didn't have the vision to kind of take the club forward, or, or you know, it's a kind of a, almost like a collision between the old-fashioned ways and football accelerating in such a race that within a ten-year period, you know, people's priorities are totally different in terms of what they wanted from their football club. So, I think um, I can understand what you're saying. It probably doesn't reflect particularly well on David, but I think that his he thought that, that by pulling out, you know, all the stops for, for him and trying to make sure that, you know, the other, the other people, protected buyers, were, were serious about him, they'd be serious about Liverpool and, and take care of Liverpool. But uh, unfortunately, they arrived with Hicks and Gillette and obviously that wasn't the case. Simon, among the people you talked to are Xabi Alonso and Fernando Torres, mm-hmm. these really world-class players who left the club in their prime. Uh, well, maybe there was an mm-hmm. argument that Torres was, that they, they did okay in the Torres deal, but certainly Xabi Alonso. And since then, we've seen Suarez leaving as well. Can Liverpool get back to a point where they can hang on to these kind of guys the way you, you really have to if you're serious about being yeah. one of the big European teams? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be... I mean, I, I think Liverpool is serious about winning, you know, winning medals and trophies. That has to happen. Um, I think for too long that the current owners uh, believe that, you know, the, the, you know, it's obviously um, the whole money ball thing was 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 mentioned quite a lot. You know, uh, well, every single day in the papers when when they first got in charge and. Ultimately, Moneyball. I think they, they saw they looked at Arsenal and, and saw the Arsenal business model. How, you know, they they were signing players from like Cesc Fabregas and you know other young, cheap foreign players and, and increasing the value and hoping that they could you know get success that way. But ultimately, that that protest failed at Arsenal. You know, they hadn't they hadn't. It was only when they started signing players like Ozil, you know, uh, Sanchez. You, you know, they just about started. They won the FA Cup couple of times, I think the last couple of seasons, um, they haven't won the league in, in, in 10 or 11 years. Now, ultimately, I think in football, you know, what might work for the Oakland days, as it did with Moneyball, where the expectations are a lot lower, you know, I think I think Moneyball can work for, for kind of smaller, you know, smaller institutions where the demands of the fans aren't quite as, as intense, but it certainly can't work at a, a place like Liverpool now. I'm going to be interested to see how this develops with Jurgen Klopp because I think you know he he when they appointed Jurgen Klopp, I don't think they quite actually appreciated just how much his mindset is in line with their own mindset of how things could work. But 
ultimately, you know, I think Jürgen Klopp found at Borussia Dortmund that ultimately they would have to sell their best players year after year after year after year. And you can't sustain success just consistently with that process. Now, in the end, obviously Jürgen Klopp kind of ran out of energy, I think, at Borussia Dortmund after seven years. So, you know, I, I, I think Liverpool could win a league you know, under under Jurgen Klopp. But I'd be interested to see whether they could continuously, you know, win leagues. I know the competition is totally different between the Bundesliga and the Premier League. Yeah. Um I, I do think Liverpool could I think that they've got like, they've got like a a weird status problem, Liverpool. Like yeah. I, I like for for a club that's won the Champions League, the European Cup five times, mm-hmm. I can't imagine you know, if you look at the if you look at the other leading clubs in other countries Players don't leave those clubs, you know, in, in, in the yeah. sense of the club that's won. But the, one of the fascinating details in this book is when you're talking to Michael Owen and he talks about his decision to leave Liverpool in 2004 and join Real Madrid. Um, and he, he says, I never knew this, um, but he says that he, he decided, first of all, he, he's, he's talking a lot about how passionate he was about Liverpool, which he, he didn't necessarily give the impression of being at the time. But, you know, he, he felt that, you know, he was kind of a... Um, similar to the other Everton fan, Jamie Carragher, young players who'd grown up at the club and, and kind of felt something for the club. But he said, when Real Madrid came along, I just thought, you know, I'll regret if I don't go there. And I just want to go for one year, see what it's like, and then come back. This was his plan. It was, I mean, it's crazy. It's totally ridiculous. But he honestly thought that. I just couldn't imagine a mid-career Raul or, you know, Philip Lamb or, or one of these kinds of guys, which Owen was the equivalent of, a, a European Footballer of the Year. Gigs, even, someone like that. Gigs, thinking to themselves, you know what, I quite fancy a year at Liverpool and then just come yeah. back to Real or Bayern. It just wouldn't happen. So even with, even with a guy who'd grown up at Liverpool, he still kind of felt Real Madrid was irresistible. So if it's someone like Luis Suarez or, or Xabi Alonso, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's a losing battle. Yeah, well, I, I suppose uh, if you go back to that time with Michael Owen, um, you know, Liverpool had had, you know, two pretty rocky, well, quite rocky years, really. They, they won the League Cup, didn't they, in 2003, and then the season after, although they qualified for the Champions League, you know, they were, they were further behind uh, the title winners who were Arsenal that season than they ever had been under Julier, which will ultimately explain why, why Julier went. Um, now, you know, I think... At that time, so he's got to weigh into Michael Owen's age. You know, he was how old would he be at that time? Would he be 25, 26? Um, you know, it felt like Liverpool were kind of retreating and receding as as a team. Certainly not necessarily as a club. Um, as well as Michael Owen's personality is quite different to to Steven Gerrard and um, and Jamie Carragher. Um, I've been writing a little bit about Michael Owen since, actually, because people have read that chapter and, and like, you know, similar to yourself, didn't realise quite a lot of the things. And maybe what I could have done better with that chapter, even being critical of myself, is really reflected just how kind of, so you know, how confident a person he is, you know, uh, or he was at the time. I think he was certainly didn't have any, you know, self-worth issues in a different way to maybe say Stephen Gerrard, you know, one of the you know, top greatest Liverpool players had a lot of kind of doubted himself all the time. Mm-hmm. So did Jamie Carragher. Michael Owen never did. So I think Michael Owen's a slightly different personality to, to most people. I think, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people about him and he had, you know, this unshakable confidence that everything would, you know, that he would end up as, as one of the great players of all uh, of all time and being regarded in that way. And I think it probably it might just reflect Michael Owen more than it reflected Liverpool a little bit in the sense that, he just thought because he was such a you know such a valuable player for Liverpool that his career path would just carry on in this positive trajectory, and that ultimately you know he could probably choose to, to come back to Liverpool. And I do think he was absolutely genuine when he said that. But I think it probably also reflects maybe his naivety that in the bubble that he lived in at that time, you know that everything was just kind of I wouldn't, wouldn't want to say hunky dory because I don't think every any footballer's career or life is like that. But I think it just reflects his confidence in his own ability and his naivety that, that, that like once you take yourself out of a, of a club, you know, it's very difficult to get back in because you, you're not the one who has to make the decision then. You know, within 12 months, everything can change. And I suppose it did. You know, Liverpool's priorities changed within that 12 months, although 
you know, that they financially, you know, I think he explores that in the book that, you know, Liverpool were reluctant, you know, to pay the, the fees that other clubs were willing to pay. Uh, ultimately, he went to Newcastle, who kind of, you know, spent, spent four million pounds more than Liverpool, you know, um, to, 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 to take him up there. So, so yeah, I know what you're saying. I think, I think that you look at the other, like, kind of super clubs, if you like, the clubs that have kind of dominated over the last 12, you know, over the last 10 seasons in Europe, Bayern Munich or Barcelona, you know, there is players at both of those clubs that have got, you know, big academy influence. I'm not saying local players, but, like, players that have come through the academy and understand the club and who are very unlikely to want to leave. So I think it's very interesting the last couple of weeks. Obviously, it's, it's come out about Jürgen Klopp, you know, um, Reducing the pay of the you know of the academy players is clearly something that I think he has in mind. If you want to create you know a long period of success, you have to have some kind of some players that have feelings for the club. I think um, you know I suppose Michael Owen stands alone in that sense because you know he wanted to leave. I think Stephen Gerrard you know look back on that in, in in the book. It's quite clear that he thought about leaving but couldn't bring himself to do it. I think. You know, to have sustained success, you have to have some players, maybe two, three, four players who who, who drive the club forward, who, who've been through the system, who understand, you know, what the values are. I'm not really sure what the Liverpool way is anymore. You know, that people talk about it all the time, the Liverpool way. What is the Liverpool way? I think they've got to redefine that and make sure that the players who are coming through really understand what the expectations are before before we can talk about Liverpool, you know, challenging these other these other clubs. Yeah, absolutely. That's a pretty good note in which to leave it. So, I mean, you probably shouldn't be yeah. critiquing chapters in your own book, though. There'll be enough critics out, <laughs> enough critics out there. It's called Ring of Fire, LFC into the 21st Century, the players' stories. Great to talk to you again, Simon. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Sam. See if you don't get this out, my mother will. You're a wee mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, take no beep, take no, take no, take no beep. Just what's up? How can I get so beep? You know me, but I can't yell me. I can't yell me. I can't yell me. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need to fucking work, you wouldn't it? You are nothing. You are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the gun is booked. I can't stop. Get a grip. The biggest fool in Manchester. Well, Ken, have you got any definition for it? What is the Liverpool way? Nice easy one to wrap things up. Well, from, I think, what, 1959 to 1997, 98? 98, 99? Mm-hmm. Which was heaven, heaven the heavens through season. Anyway, from for nearly 40 years, uh, the Liverpool way was small-sided possession games and training. Um a few ales, uh, toast and beans, uh, beans and sausage. Um, a brutal culture of one-upmanship, according to Howard Gale, Liverpool's first black player, who who has a uh, uh, who has a book out at the moment as well, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about pretty soon. Um, but he, but uh, you know, a kind of a tough guy. Uh, a ruthless uh, culture of almost bullying in the dressing room. Almost, I say almost bullying, bullying in the dressing room. Um, a, a internal competition and uh, externally. Jamie Carragher actually talks about it a little bit in the in the book with Simon, where he talks about uh, he he obviously was an Everton fan. Apparently, like a, 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 a the biggest Everton fan in the city. You know, like uh, he up to he's in his mid-teens, he would be bursting into tears, Everton losing a game, particularly to Liverpool, you know, a club he hated it more than anyone else. So maybe he's got a kind of jaundiced view of those great Liverpool sides. But he's saying the idea that Liverpool played flair football, that only happened when John Barnes came. Before then, it was it was just winning football. It was, we'll do whatever we need to do. It doesn't matter, you know, what. We we literally don't care. We could not care less about style. Anyone who cares about style is a loser. You know that's that it's it's the mark of a loser. Oh, I care about I care about style. No, what what's important is domination. What's important is dominating your opponent, uh, crushing them beneath your iron heel. That's the Liverpool way. That was the Liverpool that way. That was Liverpool according way. to young Everton fan Jamie Carragher. I ask you, what is the Liverpool way now? Gegen pressing. <laughs> yeah. Wir glauben. Uh, so yeah, it's it's all it's all about uh, 
whatever the, the new thing is. Do you want to predict a winner for tonight's game? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that a, just an outrageous dereliction of duty, though? But Ken? I don't no, know. Give the people what they want. But I don't know. I could, I could give an opinion, but it's of no value. No, well, just, all just the same, a, we'll make that judgment. What's, what's the score going to be tonight? Pick a hand. Uh, okay, Manchester United. <sighs> really unsatisfactory, Ken. Manchester United. But, to win. but thank you. All right, that book, again, if you're looking for the title, by Simon Hughes is Ring of Fire, LFC into the 21st Century, The Players' Stories. That's pretty much it. Our second Monday podcast, we're going to have that out late afternoon, Monday time. We're just putting together our guests for a special show dedicated to Anthony Foley. Um, It's actually bizarre even having to do a tribute show on this guy, an Irish sporting hero who sadly and shockingly died in Paris over the weekend. Alan Gaffney, coach Foley at Munster, gave him the captaincy in the around 2004-2005 season. So we're going to talk to Alan all, all about Anthony. We're going to talk to Jerry Thornley, who was in Paris. He's on the way back as we record this football podcast. He's going to come straight into the studio from the airport to talk about the, I guess, the shock, the reaction in Paris. And Jerry's obviously had a lot of dealings with Anthony Foley over the years. And we're lining up a couple of other great guests for that one as well. So we will have that out for you today. That's Monday. In the meantime, thanks very much, Ken. Thank you too. Thanks, Gerald. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Gerald. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.